Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. Okay, looks like we are live. Welcome to Standing for Truth. My name is Donnie, and I want to welcome everybody to this important program. It is a privilege to have Dr. Jerry Bergman here with me for a presentation titled, God Created the Universe Just for You. Jerry has been a blessing to this ministry. I am very thankful for his work and for his defense of the faith. As a matter of fact, this is Jerry's fifth time here on the program. Please check the description box of this video for the relevant links to his previous much watch programs here with us. Now, before we get into the presentation for this evening, I do want to hand it over to my co-host today, Sam. Sam, again, thanks for, for being here and, and helping me with this important uh, show. And if you had any words of introduction, and then also uh, we have a brief intro for our guest, Dr. Jerry Bergman. Yeah, no, no brief intro um, for me. I'm just glad to be here. So yeah, so Dr. Jerry Bergman has taught biology, genetics, chemistry, biochemistry, anthropology, geology, and microbiology for over 40 years at several colleges and universities, <clears throat> including Bowling Green State University Medical College of Ohio, where he was a research associate with experimental pathology, and the University of Toledo. He was a graduate of the Medical College of Ohio, Wayne State University in Detroit, the University of Toledo, and Bowling Green State University. He has over 1,300 publications in 12 languages <clears throat> and 40 books and monographs. His books and tech textbooks that include chapters that he authored are in over 1,800 college libraries in 27 countries. So far, 80,000 copies of the 60 books and monographs that he has authored or co-authored are in print. So, Dr. Jerry, it sounds like you're perfectly suitable for this conversation. <laughs> thank you very Absol much. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Bergman, again, thank you so much for being here. Sam, I appreciate the intro. Before I hand it over to Jerry, I've got a few of his books in front of me that I highly recommend people please check out the relevant uh, links to Jerry's books, his website, for example, previous presentations are in the description box. So this one right here. C.S. Lewis, Anti-Darwinist. Uh, Jerry's been here for a presentation and talk specifically on that book, which I highly recommend checking out. Definitely opened my eyes to one of my favorite Christian apologists. Uh, Fossil Forensics, extremely comprehensive book, and a newer book uh, by Jerry Bergman here titled The Three Pillars of Evolution Demolished, Why Darwin Was Wrong. So again, to the audience, I highly recommend these books. Uh, it's well worth uh, the time and, and the read for sure. So with that, Dr. Bergman, we're just going to hand it over to you for your presentation. And again, thanks so much for, for giving us your time for this. It's good to be here talking about uh, when God 
decided to create man and woman, he first had to create a house, a place for him to live. And that place we know as the universe. And the entire universe had to be designed around human requirements. So the core was people and what do people need to survive? Well, the universe had to be designed around those requirements. And of course, we know we live in a very special place. That's not denied. That's called the privileged planet, and that's well recognized in the, in the scientific world. So Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So this really talks about the first thought until we ended up with the earth and the inhabitants, the place on the earth where people can, can, can inhabit. And the key scripture of this presentation is Romans 19, 20, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Of course, that's the universe being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. In other words, we see evidence of God all around us in the universe. And this is proof of the creator. You have a creation. You obviously must have a creator. And when they do surveys on why people believe in God, by far the most common reason people give is the universe. The world around us, the skies, the trees, the birds, the animals, etc. That is the evidence for the creator. And there is the final goal, Adam and Eve. And but first, before anything can be created, we must have space, time, matter, and energy. Now, the Big Bang says the same thing at the beginning. The Big Bang says there was no space, time, matter, or energy. And the Big Bang produce space, time, matter, and energy somehow. Don't know <laughs> how it did, but somehow it did. And then the four forces are required to hold matter together. And they are gravity, electromagnetism, the strong and weak nuclear force. And these forces are necessary, only four forces that holds the entire universe together. And here you can see some data. We know a lot about these forces. They can be measured, and there we go. And uh, we know a strong nuclear force holds things together, binds the protons in the atomic nuclei. And Isaiah 40, 12, 40, 21 through 23 says, Hath it not been told to you from the beginning? You have not understood from the foundations of the earth. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth and that stretches out the heavens as a curtain and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in. So this analogy really describes the creation of the universe poetically, but on the other hand, it explains what is happening. Now, of course, now we're looking at the home, the specific home for us, which is the earth, and a design of the earth must be come up with. Well, we know from the laws of gravity that a flat disk is not going to work for many reasons. We know that the gravity system tends to cause circles. How they make wall bearings is they take molten steel, they drop it from a tower, it goes through a vacuum, and the forces of the gravity within the metal, bonding forces, pull 
a circle of metal together, which lands into a oil, which of course cools it down and that's how we get ball bearings. Well, the earth, the shape has to be circular. And so there we go. Only around earth holds things together. And this is obvious to us, of course, because we have seen this talked about and discussed over and over. But if you think about it, it took the ancients a while to figure out the earth has to be round for a number of reasons. And the origin of the moon, this is a question people have, where the moon come from? Well, there are several theories of where the moon came from. One is the collision theory, and that's the one at the top, where Theia crashed into the earth and knocked a big chunk out of the earth, and this chunk became the moon. And this, to me, reminds me of Velikowski, who was thoroughly criticized 40, 50 years ago. It's really pretty much the same idea. And so the criticisms of Velikowski, I think, also fit into this theory. The moon could have, another theory is, it started orbiting the Earth. The Earth grabbed onto it as it was traveling forward, and then it circled the Earth. And that's where the moon came from, one theory. And a fission theory is where the Earth was spinning around quite fast, and sections of it came undone, and that formed the moon, and that's where we got the moon. Well, of course, the creation world who basically says when God created the earth, he created the moon simultaneously. And none of these four theories I mentioned really are satisfactorily and scientists admit it. We really don't have a good explanation as to where the moon came from. And I think the fission theory now is uh, the most widely accepted, but you have to keep, kind of keep track of this because the most widely accepted theory tends to change. And of course, the moon has to orbit the earth and the earth has to orbit the sun. And the best explanation for that is, is gravity pulls the earth towards the sun because the sun's gravity is enormous, but the earth is traveling very fast and therefore it travels at a circle which mimics the gravity pull. And the best example of this, of course, was done by uh, Galileo as well as others. You take a cannon, you shoot a cannonball from that cannon, and the cannonball goes so far and falls on the earth. If you put more force behind the umph of the cannon, the, the ball that goes from that has more force, it's able then to travel farther around the curvature of the earth. Even more force producing more motion causes the circle of the cannonball to match, as you can see, the circle of the earth. And therefore, the reason the moon stays up there is because it is falling. And it is falling at a rate which is equal to the, the parallel of the Earth, and therefore it stays up there. And so it's a very simple explanation we have now, but for many years we uh, scientists were baffled as to how that stayed up there. Anyways, uh, gravity central to this, how this works. And the Earth must rotate in 24 hours, which we, of course, are used to. But other planets like Mercury, a day would be not 24 hours, but two years. For Venus, it would be 5,832 hours. So the fine details, like the rotation of the Earth, have to be figured out. And we can see that the closest planet to the Earth's rotation is Mars, but still, it is not quite the same. Now, why is there all these planets? 
Why is there Mars, Jupiter, Uranus, Neptune, Saturn, and so on? All these planets have a very important function, and that is the Earth movement around the, so in the solar system has to be stable, and stability is important, and stability is facilitated by the weight of these planets. It's true Jupiter doesn't have a large gravity effect on the Earth, but it has some gravity effect. And also Jupiter functions, they all, all the planets function, as a way of absorbing debris from outer space, meteorites, so that Jupiter's gravity is so great that it prevents most meteors from crashing into the Earth. Not all, but most. There's a few, in fact, the large meteorites that have hit the Earth. There is three, and that's all, as far as we know from history. Some theory about a fourth, but that's another story. And you can see the moon does not have the atmosphere to protect the land. And therefore, because it doesn't have it, you can see all the meteors, the craters that are produced by the meteors. Now, we have, of course, many hit the Earth, but by the time they reach the ground, they're pretty well dissipated. And only a few produce a significantly large crater. Also, of course, the moon, of course, pulls many away as well. And the planets rotate as the system. The whole system has to be functional. In fact, people have written books about this. If Jupiter wasn't there, the Earth, the way we know it, wouldn't exist. And so all these planets, they figured out by doing a number of uh, discrete calculations are important for the Earth to exist. So you can see the Earth there, the blue planet, and you can see how small it is compared to uh, the giant planets, the gas planets, uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. But these have to be large in order to serve their function. And so again, when you look at the privileged planet idea, people have realized that indeed the system we see today, not just the Earth, but all the planets are necessary for life to exist on the Earth. And there's the Milky Way galaxy. And of course, that has to be created by an artist because we haven't flown out that far to get a good picture yet. But you can see where the Earth is. And it happens to be in a very good place in the galaxy. If it was somewhere else, they would have too much light from the stars, be too close to the stars, and other places would be too, too far away. And we can see a top view where the uh, Earth and the our uh, solar system exists is in, in the ideal place in the Milky Way galaxy. And scientists, of course, have determined, is it in the ideal place and why is that the ideal place? And you get into this in detail in a number of books which show that we are not only a privileged planet, but we're in a privileged place in the Milky Way galaxy. And that bright part in the, part in the center there is now we understand a black hole, which is necessary for the entire galaxy to function properly. And there you can see the other galaxies, the local group, which is a family of galaxies, which our galaxy is part of. Get some water here, but deal with my throat. And there we can see a, quite a large group, a local group, which again are necessary when we're talking about the, the galaxy that we live in. That local group we know now we can figure out mathematically is necessary to produce stability. And then there are billions of galaxies. In fact, the new pace, a new telescope, which is was launched what a year ago is finding even more galaxies than we realized before. 
lots of galaxies. But from this picture, you can see that almost all of the points of light are actually galaxies. They're not individual stars. And what holds all these galaxies together? Well, the theory is that dark matter holds these together. Dark matter is the theory that we've developed because the gravity isn't great enough to produce what we see in the universe. So therefore, there must be matter which is dark. We can't see it, but it's matter and therefore is gravity. And therefore, that helps us explain how the whole universe is held together. Habitable zone. Now we're going back to the Earth. We are in the just right position. If the Earth was much closer to the sun, it'd be too hot. If much farther away, it would be too cold. Even Mars is not at, in any way ideal temperature. Although we're trying to figure out how we can live on Mars, I kind of wonder if that'll ever occur. The Earth is a water planet. <clears throat> when you look at all the planets, you can see that it's really quite in contrast to the other planets. We are the water planet because about uh, two-thirds of the Earth's surface is covered with water. So we're talking about a huge area which is covered with water. Not two-thirds, but one-third. Or is it one-fifth? All these numbers. It's a problem with science. There are so many numbers that one gets them confused. That's why we often take notes and, and keep notes. Question is, where did the water come from? Well, I actually decided to only guess. I did a number of uh, papers on this, looked into the theories of where the water came from, and in essence, we don't know. But one theory, which I was pretty impressed with, was that most of the water came from comets, because comets are, as they say, icy snowballs, and therefore, most of the water came from comets. The problem is, though, comets have too much heavy water, which is has deuterium in it instead of yeah, deuterium instead of protein, and therefore that's a problem. And there, that rules them out as a source. So, well, I, I thought it was pretty convincing. Volcanoes is another theory that volcanoes not only spew a lot of ash and minerals and so on, but also water. And uh, one other theory is outer space, but how it got here, we don't know. So, how did the water come here? Well, several theories, but they all are problematic. Although for a while I thought comets was the explanation, but Mm -hmm. doesn't turn out to be that way. And now when you compare the planets, you can see the Earth is strikingly different from all the others. Now, Saturn, of course, has the beauty of the rings. Mars, a red color, but I don't know. I like blue. Most people like blue much better than red. Red's a fiery color, anger color, etc. Venus, a yellow color, which isn't much better. Mercury, not much color at all, aside from spotted oranges and so on, but the Earth is a blue planet, which has to be blue because for life to exist, we need a huge source of water. Okay, now then we need to have a planet which life can exist. Not only light, but, and this surprises people when I do this presentation, that's the Earth is the only known planet where fire is possible. And why? Because it has 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, and about 1% argon. So basically, this proportion, especially nitrogen and oxygen, is such where fire is possible, but if the oxygen level was much higher, we'd end up with a problem of too much, too many explosions. So 21% is about the ideal percent of oxygen in the atmosphere. 
Venus's atmosphere, it's primarily carbon dioxide and a small amount of nitrogen and very, very little, if any, oxygen. And the pressure at Venus, looking now at Venus, is 92 times Earth's pressure. So therefore, that's not going to work either. Mars, the atmosphere is about 96% carbon dioxide. Well, that's obviously not going to work because, well, way too much carbon dioxide. Except you would think you would have more other than the greenhouse effect on Mars, but evidently a carbon dioxide atmosphere is far too thin to produce that. So Earth, the only known planet of fire. And that means huh, heating homes would be a problem. Cooking food would be a problem. Melting steel would be a problem. Gasoline and jet engines work, of course, by burning fuel, which causes the engines to work. And even electric light bulbs, I'm not sure about uh, the LED light bulbs, but the other light bulbs, you have to have uh, like for the uh, zinc and uh, tungsten light bulbs, you have to have a certain level of oxygen, although they remove most of it before it works. Otherwise, the bulb burns out too quickly. And the more oxygen, the hotter the fire. So we take a uh, fire and blow water, sorry, blow oxygen on it, and that produces higher temperatures, and therefore we can melt uh, metals, and that is critical to build our society. Now, nebulae, now we're looking out in the universe, and these are three famous pillars of creation. The uh, new telescope has a number of really good pictures, which allows us to see that from a different perspective. But uh, these are about 7,000 light years away. And therefore, they uh, give us the impression of, well, three pillars. And of course, the, behind it is the gas, which is uh, illuminated because it absorbs light from the stars and galaxies behind it. And this is one of the most interesting finds. When the person saw this, and I usually ask classes, what do you think they named this? And uh, somebody usually says, the eye of God. And indeed, the person who discovered this, he couldn't sleep, I was told, for three days. Because indeed, to see this through your telescope, nobody has seen that before, really was quite amazing for the person. And he, the eye of God. It does look like an eye. The oval shape is similar, the egg shape, the blue in the center, the pupil, and of course, the uh, surrounding area there, which highlights the eye. Now back to the atmosphere. There are several layers of the atmosphere, the exosphere, thermosphere, mesosphere, stratosphere, and troposphere. And these are all necessary in order to produce the effects required for life to live on the earth. And the conditions in those areas are different. And someone asked me what specifically are the differences. Well, that's another presentation. But they are different. And the terms, of course, describe someone. Exo is the farthest one out. Thermo, you're talking about heat. Meso in the middle, stratosphere, you know, not too far from us, troposphere, of course, where life lives. So all of those have different conditions and different ratios of oxygen and other gases. And of course, obviously, the Earth must have a sun. About 100 trillion photons arrive every second at every square centimeter of Earth's daylight surface. So we're talking about a quintillion every second which is enormous. Ozone layer, though, is special. We have to cover that separately. The ozone layer basically blocks out pretty much all the cosmic radiation. 
The ozone, of course, is O3, and that molecule is necessary to absorb the energy of the cosmic radiation, and as a result, reduces the level of radiation that hits the Earth. Still some hits the Earth, but it is less, much less than it would ordinarily be. Greenhouse effect, we hear a lot of negative things about that, but the greenhouse effect is necessary in order for the Earth to achieve the temperature that it does. Extremely necessary. And of course, the greenhouse effect is caused by water. People tend to ignore that, the CH, let's see, uh, sorry, CO2, which is carbon dioxide, and then water, I'll get it, H2O, it's been a long day, and then CH4, a methane. So these are four very important gases which cause the greenhouse effect. The problem is it has to be not too small and not too large. So it has to be the right effect in order to produce the required temperature on the earth. If it was from a certain level of parameters, we'd end up with the earth cooling too fast, all life would die, or it would be too warm and all life likewise would die. Earth also has a magnetic field, the magnetosphere, and this can be measured at the poles. And the magnetosphere is another important means that cosmic radiation is prevented from uh, destroying life on the Earth. And this is a problem you have to be concerned with, of course, in outer space. You don't have these protections and so on. You have to uh, develop a means of producing protection. Otherwise, the cosmic radiation may end up, end up causing cancer and other problems. And the solar wind would, would be part of the cosmic radiation as well as other particles from the sun. And these are deflected quite effectively because of this solar protection system. It deflects the solar flare. And the magnetosphere is a vast comet-shaped bubble, <coughs> and it plays a critical role in our planet's habitability. There we go. It shields our planet from solar and cosmic particle radiation. It also, also prevents the erosion of the atmosphere by solar wind which would be a big problem because we lose our atmosphere and we lose our ability to support life. Lightning is necessary to fixate nitrogen. And when I present this, this tends to surprise people the most. We need lightning, really? Yes, we need lightning. Now, if I present this to a farm community, they, of course, say, mm -hmm, yeah, of course, everyone knows, everyone should know, farmers know at least, that lightning is necessary to fixate nitrogen. Nitrogen is in a stable form in the atmosphere, and it cannot be used by most plants. Some can use it, but most can't. Most can't. And therefore, lightning fixates nitrogen so it can be used for fertilization. And that, therefore, after a lightning storm, this, the atmosphere smells different. And also, a day or so later, we see how the plants thrive after a good lightning storm. And so... Some people in the city may pray that lightning does not strike us, but in the country, they pray that lightning is going to come and help fertilize the crops. And indeed it does. Many cycles are necessary. It's one thing that we need to stress more that the natural world recycles everything. There's not one thing that is not effectively recycled. And this example here is nitrogen. Kind of complex as I showed here in the illustration. But on the other hand, of course, it has to be recycled and it does very, very effectively. And the water cycle we're probably more familiar with. The sun causes evaporation, producing clouds. 
The clouds, because of wind, are moved over to the land. The clouds produce precipitation, rain. The rain then eventually works its way back to the oceans. And that water cycle works continually, run by the sun. Without a sun, we wouldn't have the water cycle and we would not have rain. Thus, we would not have life on the earth. Carbon cycle, again, is important as well. And the problem with CO2 in the atmosphere is we need to facilitate the carbon cycle by, for example, putting more plants, plants which absorb carbon dioxide, and that will reduce the atmospheric load of carbon dioxide. Heat cycle, the same thing. If you live near the water, you can see that you got the sea breeze towards the land, and then the warm air rises, and then cool air when it cools as it moves up towards the upper part of the atmosphere. Cool air sinks, and then you have this circulation of heat called the heat cycle. And the source of heat, this surprises people because, especially when the people demonstrate against nuclear power, my response is, what do you think you are sitting on right now? Below you is a nuclear power plant. And that nuclear power plant is what ensures that the earth stays warm. You dig a hole three, four feet down, depending upon where you live, you find the temperature is such where you have no freezing. Water doesn't freeze. It's too warm. The reason it's too warm is because of the radiation decay, nuclear decay in the earth. You also have, of course, the center of the earth, the outer core and inner core is heat. And therefore that heat is, source of heat is another source for heating the earth. So there are at least three or more sources to heat the earth, which is critical for the earth to maintain the correct temperature. And then we have volcanoes and volcanoes again are always are very important. And it surprises people because we see volcanoes as being bad, but volcanoes is a way of bringing minerals up to the earth. And therefore after volcanoes erupt, we end up with a really very fertile soil. Now you might wonder, why would people farm? Why would they build homes near a volcano? Well, because it's really very, very fertile area. It's very fertile area because of course, the uh, volcanoes. And then of course, God had to create the periodic table of the elements. And there are about a hundred elements. There are what, a dozen now, which are man-made. And the elements that are there are all necessary. Most are necessary for life. About 60, I think, are necessary for life. Some we're not sure about because we learn whether they're necessary for life by depriving people of the elements. But some elements are so hard to deprive people of. Usually students do this research. They are paid to have a certain diet. And if you want to find out the function of boron, and of course, a lot of these we already know at this time, but you want to find out the function of vanadium, for example, you deprive students of the vanadium and you see what happens. And after three, four or five days, we can see the effects of deprivation of vanadium. Some, of course, takes a while to see the effects because some metals, we need such small amounts that they therefore takes a while before they are used up and therefore they have to be replaced. But anyways, that's the problem with arsenic. Arsenic is found everywhere in foods and water and the air, and it's hard to deprive people of arsenic. And so we don't know if it's a necessary element for people, at least. 
And then we look at the surface of the earth, we can see that it has the elements necessary for life, for a plant, and of course, plant life is necessary for animal life. And uh, aluminum, fair iron, calcium, sodium, magnesium, and, uh, and so on. All these are necessary. There are many others, of course, especially oxygen. There are many others. Now, silicon is not necessary for life, but silicon is necessary for snow and many other things. Now, a number of books have been written about what would happen if the moon disappeared. Well, the moon is required for life and many reasons why. Number one is it produces high and low tides. And why are high and low tides necessary? Well, they're necessary because stagnant water tends to decay. Water movement is necessary for life to thrive in water. When you have small bodies of water and there's not much movement, the fungi and so on tend to take over the area, the moss, and as a result, it destroys most of the life in the water. And so high tide and low tide are necessary. Also, if you think about it, the, yes, okay. If you think about it, the uh, ocean's movement is like human blood. Bloodstream contains nutrients for life. It also contains waste products, which are filtered out by the kidneys. And water in oceans, likewise, movement is necessary because if you think about it, water is the source of life for life that lives in water, and life is also the toilet for life that lives in water. So circulation is necessary to facilitate that function, just like human blood has to circulate before we are able to produce life of the blood from the nutrients, carrying the nutrients to the cells. Also, the tilt is necessary. The loss of tilt would make most of the earth uninhabitable. Tilt allows the seasons. The seasons are important. Planets that don't tilt tend to have very extremely hot temperatures near the equator and cold temperatures near the poles. And too, way too cold, I should say, and way too warm. It's cold by our poles, but not uh, such that where no life can live there. And so... An earth spin, of course, is necessary to spin a certain level. And uh, there you can see how the earth is tilted. And you can see how the tilt is about 23 and a half degrees, which is ideal for life to exist on the earth. And that tilt is maintained by the moons. I got a dog <laughs> wants to give me a hard time. Go on, go on, go on. He wants to listen to this presentation too. So anyway. And the tilt, as I mentioned, produces the seasons. And we can see that if we lack that tilt, we would see it's way too hot during the equator and it would be way too cold at the poles. And so therefore, we are without that tilt, well, humans couldn't survive in much of the earth. But now, of course, we, we can. Rotation is 24 hours. So we get 12 hours of light and 12 hours of dark. Mercury a problem because day is 1,407.5 hours. Way too long, you end up with a very, very hot day. 12 hours, well, 1,400 hours, way too long. And uh, therefore, life could not live on Mars because it gets too hot because the rotation is too slow. Venus stays longer than a year. And therefore, of interest is Venus spins clockwise. It's upside down. And the Earth 
total design is ideal for life. And that's just a brief hint of a few of the reasons why the Earth is indeed a privileged planet. Many others, but I just try to go through a few important ones. And again, the ones that surprise people the most are volcanoes and lightning. Just, I guess, wasn't commonly known that those are important. But uh, we should thank God for volcanoes, except be careful when you live too close to one. Uh, and of course, we should thank God for lightning because it's these are two mechanisms which are very important for life to thrive on the earth. And indeed, it does. And that's the end of my point. Well, Dr. Bergman, again, excellent presentation. This is a presentation that I want to highly encourage the audience to share around. It's very important to know that God created the entire universe just for you. So again, I appreciate the visuals and the comprehensive presentation, Dr. Bergman. Sam, any thoughts from you? And maybe we'll start with you, brother, if you wanted to advance the first question. Yeah, I mean, I I don't have enough faith to believe this is all just the result of some random accident. I mean, that's pretty fine-tuned and balanced, if you ask me. But um, you mentioned comments, and I know, you know, when a comment comes around, the, the news, the secular news, the papers, the internet goes wild, and they ask everyone to go out and take a look, or at least let us know. Um, is there anything about a comment that is inconsistent with billions of years? Well, comets have a certain lifespan. Every time they travel around the sun, or at least the ones that travel in that orbit, a certain level of the matter is lost. Of course, icy snowball is the common way they describe them. And each time it goes around, we have more and more lost. And so therefore, if the Earth was four and a half billion years old or whatever date they assign it to it, uh, you wouldn't have all these comets. And, uh, and at least you would have a source of new comets. And of course, their hypothetical field out there several hypothetical fields, but the ore cloud, I think, is one and another one. But but anyways, which is the source of comets. And uh, so therefore, evolutionists say we have new comets all the time. But uh, judging by what we see all the time, it looks like the comets can't be that old, and therefore the Earth and solar system cannot be that old. Thank you. Is this Oort cloud that the evolutionists uh, look to as an explanation to replenish the comets that essentially have shelf lives. Is this observable, Dr. Bergman? Uh, as far as I you hear different things, it's talked about as if it's out there and we've seen it. And over when I taught astronomy, we say the earth cloud this, the earth cloud that, and so on. But from what I know is we've never really had any direct evidence. It's postulated to be out there. And it's never that in my astronomy book, that wasn't mentioned. It wasn't said, well, we don't really have any evidence, but it must be there because of whatever reasons. And so anyways, it's a, it's, a, it's a theory that we've never really directly seen. So far away, we've had a hard right. time seeing Pluto until recently. And there's a few other Cirrus and a few other planetesimals out there that we've seen. But on the other hand, the comets, the theory is much farther away than that. So that's, and of course, comets aren't that large compared to, Pluto would be a huge comet if it was a comet. Right. So that's a, I see as a problem for the, the Earth cloud theory. With these short-lived comets, they're definitely, you know, one of many 
excellent lines of evidence for a young earth. And so this question right here for you, uh, Dr. Bergman, is what do you believe are some of the best lines of evidence, so maybe something other than the comet's argument, that this universe God has created just for us is young? Well, there's a lot. I think some of the more impressive ones is the planets just don't exist as how they should. They're upside down. They're circling around. Was it Neptune, I think? Or is it Uranus? That uh, its axis is parallel with the planet, the plane of the planets. And so there are a lot of reasons why that argues against that creation. And also it's fine-tuned now. And the assumption is, as well, it just worked this way and took billions of years, or at least 4.6 billion years to be fine-tuned. And that's, of course, theoretical. And that's uh, the age question is, when I was in school, this may be dating me. <laughs> the audience may say, oh, boy. We learned, and I had learned all this stuff in sixth grade. We learned the Earth was 2 billion years old. And I still have that book which said the Earth is 2 billion years old. Well, it's a lot <laughs> Older than now, so I'm not that much older. But for it to double, uh, more than double, since I was in sixth grade, is quite so. The age question is often utilized to explain things. We can't explain it with the age that we have, so therefore this must be older in order to explain it. And so it's not that we usually have proof for the longer ages; it's that there must be longer ages because, well, to explain this, the universe must have been around a much longer period of time. And of course, the whole creation ex nihilo idea is, is that as Adam was created ex nihilo, if he was two days old and the doctor came in to see him, the doctor would check him out and say, well, gee, you're pretty healthy. 30-year-old man, I see no plaque on your arteries and you're pretty healthy. You're, you must be about 32, I understand. Adam says, well, no, actually, I was just created two days ago. But he would have the appearance of age because he'd have to have that appearance for Adam to live, have to have blood circulating in his system to be alive. If it didn't circulate in the system he's created, he would die shortly thereafter. And so therefore the appearance of age, I think is impressive because it's necessary for any ex nihilo creation, not only Adam and Eve, but also with the, with the solar system. <laughs> I think your, uh, I think your dog approves of that answer. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Bergman. Like that. <laughs> Fantastic points. And I completely agree with you in terms of Adam, obviously he wasn't created in the garden as a baby or a zygote. And so you'd have a mixture there. If the doctor were to analyze his height, his weight, he may conclude that Adam's 30 to 35 years old. But if he were to do some blood tests or some DNA tests or fitness tests, he might realize, wow, it looks as if you've been created. You have no cholesterol buildup, you know, you're healthy. And so, you know, those are some great points. Sam, did you have a follow-up question or anything that you'd like to? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think God would have had to have created a full ecosystem or else everything would um, would have to die. Um, Dr. Bergman, when we, you showed an image of a spiral galaxy and, um, you know, those are beautiful. When you look out there, these, just these massive structures in the sky. And so I'm, I'm wondering if there's anything about those that you could um, speak on that would be also inconsistent with a universe that's billions of years old. Well, as galaxies age, of course, there certain changes occur. And from the observation of a large number of galaxies, they all seem to be pretty much the same age. And when we go way, way out, of course, now the new telescope we have, we can see much farther out. But when we go way, way out, we don't see those 
galaxies, as they would expect, would would be younger because we, of course, galaxies that are so far away, we're seeing them, according to evolutionary theory, what they look like a billion years ago. So therefore, the farther out we go, the younger the galaxy should look like. And well, no, there are lots of galaxies, of course, we can do to compare that. But from what I read, that, that is a problem when we look at the old age view because the galaxies just don't fit what we would expect. Namely, they'd be much younger. Because it takes if galaxies 10 light years away from here, or 1,000 light years away from here, we would expect it to look like it looked like a thousand years ago right yeah still forming what about um what about spiral galaxies and the, the rate at those spin are those consistent with an old earth old yeah that's another, cosmos? another problem because as they age certain changes occur and we see a lot of galaxies that those changes hasn't occurred and so mm -hmm. and i forget whether they tighten up or whether they loosen up or one or the other yeah changes so therefore the galaxies have certain traits which are necessary well here's a here's a common objection and question that's been pushed by the critics of young earth creation for years and years and years sam one of your favorite topics as well brother so new creation in christ has a question and it is related to what we're talking about here in terms of galaxies and stars in the universe and so his question is what is your theory or view dr bergman on starlight and distance well, I think, again, a creation ex nihilo, I, now this, there's a lot of views among creationists on this, right. but it seems to me that as God created Adam with blood flowing in his veins and arteries, that God created the universe with the light from the galaxies. So we see the galaxies because they were created ex nihilo pretty much at the same time. Now, other creationists disagree with that, and that's why I like to focus on things that are unequivocal, like the creation of humans. We have no evidence right. for the evolution mm -hmm. of humans, and that's why I have my thick book that I, 400 and some pages of eight and a half by 11 paper, I showed indeed that we really have no good evidence for the evolution of humans. And that's an area there really is no controversy. So I'll try to focus on areas which are non-controversial. But um, Amen. Um, the special creation of man, Adam and Eve, separate ancestry. So us as young earth creationists, we would hold to the separate ancestry model than, rather than universal ancestry that would say plants and animals are related and humans are related to the great apes. What are some good lines of evidence scientifically, Dr. Bergman, for separate ancestry, for a literal Adam and Eve from the Bible? If you want to see my little guy. Yeah. <laughs> listening and commenting. He doesn't have too much to say, but every now and then he likes to, to add a few sense worth but this is rudy and hey rudy uh, good to meet you actually we've met several times before yeah that's so. right he likes to come in when i'm talking he enjoys him. your presentations jerry yeah. and you can in spending time with dogs you can see he was clearly created, <laughs> created Amen. Perfectly for us and indeed Amen. they are he doesn't complain he doesn't yell he, he knows he barks occasionally and he lets us know what he's feeling but by and large he just never complains we go on a walk, it's too short, I cut it back, and he goes back home sooner than he expected. And that's it. So anyway, say hi, everybody, Rudy. Okay, go spend He's a well-designed creature. He's definitely not the result of random processes, random mutations and selection over time, that's for sure. Yeah. Anyways, okay, where were we? Uh, 
No, no problem. So my question was, as you mentioned, no evidence for human evolution, the, the special creation of man. My follow up question was, scientifically, what are some good lines of evidence for separate ancestry for a literal Adam and Eve, rather than humans going back to pre-human ancestors and basically sharing a relationship with the great apes? Oh, there's a, a lot of a lot of differences. Just pic pictures of he is objecting to that. There's a lot of pictures which show clearly the difference between an ape and a human are enormously different. Clearly different. One of the most impressive, of course, is genetic differences. We're talking about uh, three billion base pairs for humans and a few more for apes. And therefore, the differences between those when you compare them is enormous, but 85% similarity. And so we're talking about a what about uh, about a half a billion base pair differences between the two and uh, to bridge that evolutionists have just baffled they just haven't been able to, to bridge that would you say there's a waiting time problem in light of those differences that separate humans and chimpanzees a waiting time problem for not only the beneficial mutations to arise but to become fixed or stuck in place within the respective populations jerry uh yeah there is and when you compare the two again you find obvious similarities, but on the other hand, a good paleoanthropologist can tell within five minutes or less whether this bone came from a human or an ape. So there's similar, similar structures, of course, but by and large, there are many, many differences which are important. One of the main differences, of course, is that we're bipedal, and therefore the skeletal system has to be designed quite differently than apes, which are quadrupedal, and therefore the differences are apparent in all the bones they're not enormously different, on the other hand, because they have the same function. But on the other hand, they are quite different. Are there any di diagnostic traits in terms of the fossil record when it comes to humans and great apes? As in, we can pick up a fossil and be able to tell with some pretty thorough analyses or, or study that, that this is a human bone rather than some kind of ape bone? The skull is pretty easy because, of course, you have the spinal cord and the vertebra, which go into the back of the skull, the occipital area. And that's very different in humans compared to all apes. And that's one thing they look at when they're trying to determine whether or not a skull is from a human or a ape. It's interesting that in spite of the skulls they've found, they pretty clearly fit in the ape category or the human category. There are very, very few that they can even claim are in the in-between category. And of course, the problem has always been, how do you go from the ape design to the human design? Right. How do you go from walking on all fours to walking on two? And therefore, they say, well, the transition was so fast, therefore, it didn't leave evidence in the fossil record. But on the other hand, to imagine how it went from one to the other is, of course, takes a lot of creativity to come up with a theory of how uh, bipedal uh, locomotion could evolve from quadrupedal. And of course, right. there's a big difference, uh, obviously, a huge difference in the mind. We have speech. They don't have speech. They can make noises, but they don't have speech as we do. And speech itself is extremely complex and requires very specific designs. And that design is not in apes. Apes could never speak. They can make noises. They can make grunts, but they cannot speak because the whole design is different in humans compared to apes. 
Amen. Well said. There's some major discontinuities in the fossil record, but also in genetics. One line of evidence I like to focus on, Jerry, is with the Y chromosome. When they sequenced the Y chromosomes between humans and chimpanzees, they discovered that when you consider overall gene content, size differences, and architecture, the Y chromosomes are only about 35% the same. And it turns out that the chimpanzee and gorilla or the human and gorilla Y chromosome or are more similar to each other, which breaks their so-called nested hierarchy than either are to, to the chimpanzee. And so those are some massive differences. Isn't yeah. that right for the, for the evolutionists to account for since their hypothetical split? I have entire books written by evolutionists, which talk about the differences between men and apes. And it's, you know, 500 and some pages. Someday I'm going to get, get through them, but, <laughs> 500 and some pages showing the huge differences. And uh, I think that would be a book creationists could write. Maybe someday I'll write that book. But on the other hand, there, yeah, there are many, many differences. There's and just so, not enough time in the day to uh, get everything done we want to. Sam, I got one more follow-up question, brother, and then I'm going to hand it to you for a couple questions. Jerry, what are your thoughts? I understand that you've written and studied a lot on human evolution. A lot of your evolutionists and those that believe your astralopithecines walked upright or possess a mosaic of features, they'll look to the Lucy hip and they will uh, compare it to a, a, an extant human, a modern day human hip. And they'll say that, that it's so similar that Lucy astralopithecus afarensis must have walked upright. What are your thoughts on, on that claim and, and that evidence, Jerry? Well, I understand when that was assembled, there was some problems and they had to do some, some, uh, cutting work in order to produce what they thought was the right design for it to walk upright. Although that's not why they said they did it. They said the way it was, it was distorted because of the fossilization process. And therefore they had to correct the fossilization process. And there was a film of that. You've probably seen it, which shows indeed that the hip was designed very differently than what they expected. So, uh, or many evolutionists say, yeah, you know, that's a problem. Hey, we're working on it. It's only, Right. <laughs> 150 years since Darwin did his work and give us some time. We'll figure out the transition and how humans evolved from an ape-like ancestor. Well, just, just give us time. Another and, couple billion years and, and maybe they'll have a good answer. <laughs> the, the main thing is this belief. It's believe it. And right. I have a whole presentation which covers the contrast specifically between apes and humans. And it's just overwhelming. In my brief presentations, what, 50 slides? And I just cover a few of the more salient things. And it's so overwhelming. When I presented this to people who are not in agreement with me, they just say, yeah, what can you say? Except it takes more time. It's just add a few more billion years and we'll get that, <laughs> right. that transition filled. Time is the hero of the plot for the evolutionists. One final question, actually, because you, you made a couple points there. And then, Sam, I know you have a question as well. Yeah, when, it, when it comes to your so-called uh, hominid fossil record and the Australopithecines, in my study, uh, Jerry, your famous paleoanthropologists, they admit that there's been coexistence, overlap, intermingling with your homo genus, but also your Australopithecus types. And so if we have these bone beds that comprise a mixture of human and Australopithecus ate bones. Is, is there the opportunity there, um, therefore, for artificial species where you get the accidental mixture of these bones that results in, for example, as you know, Homo habilis, 
which is a wastebasket taxon. They don't know what it is. It's just these bones that they basically toss in, into a collection that seems to comprise human and, and ape bones. What are your thoughts on, on that, Jerry? Well, that's a good question, which I think we need to look in more, in more detail. One thing I find intriguing is there are people out there that look pretty much like an ape. And when you look at them, you know, from a dark room, they look pretty much like an ape. They're not many. And often it's a result of disease and so on. But nonetheless, there are people who do, who look in between. And uh, therefore, uh, there could well have been people living a long time ago that indeed were somewhat in between, at least morphologically, but not necessarily uh, biologically or not necessarily uh, mind-wise. But uh, yeah, Dr. Jerry, when we're talking about Neanderthal, that's something that they continue to change. I'm not sure that the secular community has made up their mind on where that person was in timeline. Um, but how is the Neanderthal consistent or inconsistent with the biblical worldview? Well, it really isn't because so many of the studies have come out now saying basically that Neanderthals are just another one of us. They're just another human, just different racial traits or different genetic traits. And, but similar enough that indeed now they argue they interbred and they could live in the same areas, etc. Just another group, people group, like we have different people groups today. And so I, I mentioned there's some out there that are not up to date, but that's something I've been interested in for quite a while because I'm part Neanderthal, as many of my friends are. And therefore, uh, the comparisons are interesting. And uh, I try to keep up with the literature, and I'm not aware of any leading paleoanthropologist who makes the claim that they were a different different creature that lived a long time ago. They most say that they live in contemporaneously with us and they're just another people group like we have different people groups today. We have Asians and Europeans and Africans and other people groups. So they just another people group. Well but how would you explain them from, you know, I I'm assuming that you would explain them back from Noah's sons after they got off the ark and then those people groups started to spread out. Mm -hmm. How would you explain them, um, I guess, from that timeline? Or would they be pre-flood? Well, no, I don't think they're pre-flood. They, you have an enormous amount of variation in many, many creatures, like dogs. We all know the dogs came from the wolf kind. We know that because we did it. And yeah, you have, what, 500 and some breeds now? And they're so very different. How could indeed all these dogs come from one type of dog? Well, they did because we know that. And we know that because we did it. We can tell where the breeds came from. Uh, breeds are often named according to where they were bred or according to what they do. And the same thing is true with uh, humans. You have enormous amount of variety in humans. You have so much intermarriage, though, that you don't tend to get the variety that you do in dogs because dogs you can breed specific traits and breed out certain traits or breed in certain traits where people we haven't done that in fact more and more you see intermixing now in fact the concern is is uh, genocide by marriage and genocide by marriage is where you eliminate races by intermarriage and some people see that happening in the united states one out of six marriages now are interracial marriage so what's going to happen three or 400 years from now, if this system continues the way it is, what's going to happen is that it's going to be harder and harder to tell the difference between a quote, a black and a white because intermarriage is so common. And we see that uh, the, the different races had to come about through a lot of breeding within a certain group. 
like dogs did. Hmm. And therefore, you see the interbreeding is producing uh, intermix mixing of different groups called, of course, genocide by, by marriage. The, the, main con, the main cause of genocide by marriage is the Jews. So many Jews have intermarried that there's not many, quote, pure Jews left today because of intermarriage. And so the Jews are concerned about this because genocide by intermarriage is causing Jews to become extinct. And so therefore, that's one reason for the nation of Israel, because the nation of Israel then will allow Jews to marry Jews, which will maintain the unique traits which Jews at one time had. But that's not working as well as they hoped, of course, in Israel, because again, people don't tend to marry based on similarity of racial traits. They tend to marry on similarity of other traits, propinquity and people you meet. And, and so therefore, what? Anyways, that's a rabbit trail. <laughs> yeah, I think the native Hawaiian islanders are having a similar problem. I think about they're down to maybe like 10% left of them. Yeah. Uh, a lot of your militant critics of separate ancestry and our explanation for Neanderthals, that they're fully human. I mean, we have their genes or a sophisticated people group. Uh, Jerry, you've done a presentation, a very thorough presentation with us on Neanderthals going over their, uh, the, the evidence for spirituality, purposeful navigation, they made cosmetics, but they'll look to the uh, genetic differences when comparing Neanderthals to us today. And, and they will argue because of those differences, as well as some of your differences in, in morphology, that they cannot be in the direct line from Adam and Eve and then obviously Noah after the flood. What would be a good response to that argument that, that suggests Neanderthal genetics are too different to us as modern homo sapiens for them to have originated from Adam and Eve, uh, Dr. Bergman? My response would be too different is a judgment that people are making. And mm -hmm. uh, I, my concern with genetic evaluations, especially of creatures that have been around for you know, 2,000 years ago, is that I know in teaching forensics, we would find a body of a pretty sure they knew who it was, and that when she died by 1946, and they find the body, and they do genetic evaluations, and all too often, they're worthless or very difficult to do genetic testing. And so if you're concerned about the fidelity of genetic differences, someone that died in 1946, what about someone that died 2,000 years ago? And unless their bodies are protected greatly, I'm, I know that they've tried really very hard to reduce contamination and so on. But on the other hand, you've got cosmic radiation, which breaks down very effectively the DNA. And therefore, even if they're buried pretty deep in the earth, it's going to be some cosmic radiation or some radiation from the radiation emitting from the radioactivity decay in the surface of the earth. And that's going to change some of the genes. And so. Uh, I just question whether or not their findings can be as good as they claim. I know they claim they go in a clean room and they try to reduce contamination, et cetera. But on the other hand, given what we know about in forensics, about bodies that have been buried 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, I can't, I just can't um, get around the idea that these two, three, 4,000 year old bodies would have enough fidelity in the DNA to make accurate comparisons. That's a good response. And, and you and I, Dr. Bergman, in, in your show on Neanderthals, 
We talked about the evidence that, that suggests how isolated they were inbred. Some of the DNA analyses has suggested that they were one of the most inbred people group on the planet. They had these massive stretches of identical letters, the increased levels of, of homozygosity. And so, of course, over time, that would change the DNA anyways. And so I don't see why we would expect Neanderthal DNA to be exactly the same as human DNA today. And so those differences, I, I don't believe, are, are the problem that, that evolutionists would, would say it is. Sam, did you have a follow-up question or did you want me to uh, grab a question here? Because I do have one here from Mistletoad. And <clears throat> he's asking, related to your presentation, Dr. Bergman, he says, can Dr. Bergman talk a little bit about our planet's privileged position in terms of our ability to observe and study the universe? Okay, yeah, we have a very privileged position because for a number of reasons. Uh, among them includes where we are in the Milky Way galaxy. We have a, from the position that we are at, we can observe quite accurately uh, the stars around us. We're not too close, too far away. And now, too close, too far away, of course, refers to the ability for life to exist on the Earth, but also refers to the ability to be able to study the rest of the universe. And, of course, probably the best example is eclipses of that, where the eclipse is such where it covers the sun so that we get a really good outline of the solar flares from the circle of the sun. And this distance is just moon is correct, it's correct size, correct distance, so that we end up with an ideal place to study not just the sun, but also, of course, of the other parts of the universe because of the sun, moon, earth relationship. It's just too close. Very close. That's probably the best example, but there are many other examples as well. Let's see where we were at. Yeah. So, Dr. Bergman, I'm wondering when we when we step back. I know in your the beginning of your presentation, you um, you listed a few things that they would have to explain by their Big Bang model, and one of those things would have to be the laws of physics. Where would those come into play from their naturalistic, you know, because they reject that God has imposed these these laws on his creation. It seems like if they can't account from those laws, which are non, they're, you know, they're not those are not physical things from the beginning of their model, then everything after that would be just an extrapolation fallacy. Yeah, that's a big problem that they have. And they admit that it's a problem. Uh, Steve Hoffman and Caulking, of course, talks about that. But what he says is that if it was different, we wouldn't be here to be talking about this question. And so it is the way it is allowing us to evolve. And therefore, because it, it was the way it is, that's why we're here and we can therefore talk about it. And of course, another response is that, uh, well, hey, this is going way, way back and we have a lot of work to do and quantum fluctuation is a theory and we have a lot of ideas that uh, we're working on, but it's been so long ago that we, we still have a lot of theoretical explanations to go. I think Hawking primarily as well as others just kind of go over, well, it's just happened, just the way it is. And uh, it's magic. In fact, Hawking uses that word occasionally, it's just, it's magic. It just happened the way it is. Yeah, I mean, it, it would have to be magic. Um, when we when we talk about the, the naturalistic worldview and the way that they interpret the data, um, back from that singularity, um, it, it's, it, it's, an, it's an attempt to explain God out of his creation. Uh, but I'm wondering if their model is to be complete, it seems like they're going to need a causal origin. Do they 
do they have a causal origin for their naturalistic worldview? Well, the best, of course, person to consult on that would be Steve Hawking. He's, of course, the leading cosmologist, and that was his area. And no, he doesn't. He just feels there's enough evidence that, yeah, we've got a few holes, but we just have to fill the holes in. And so it's a matter of belief. Some of his things he, he talks about, so obviously gaps, and he doesn't yeah. really explain how they go together, but he believes it, and therefore he sees what he wants to see. And so and it, science, unfortunately, is you see what you want to see. And it seems like they would be violating their own criteria. On one hand, they'll they'll suggest, you know, they'll make the assertion anyway that there's no evidence of God, and that's why they don't want to believe it. But then they'll hold on to their worldview, knowing that there's no fundamental evidence for it either. Yeah, that's true. And again, it's a matter of belief. The main problem is, is that you exposed to that worldview your whole life. Most of us, I watch huge number of science films every, that's what I do, help go to sleep. I watch an hour and a half, two hours of science mm -hmm. films. And I have thousands of videos, probably six or 7,000 science videos, history videos. And they all pretty much assume it's true. And in fact, I have a number of university lectures by Harvard professors, by Nobel laureates, and they basically, they're about evolution. And I've listened to hours listening to these lectures. They're well done. They have a good receptive audience or good students that are in the audience. And, uh, but they never really explain evolution. They, they talk about what, what is, not how it came to be what is. And so they, they really don't explain. There's just no evidence that they come up with that explains it. They just assume, well, this is how evolution works. This is how we're here. And so you can see belief is really central to where they're coming from. And this is one reason they don't want creation taught in the schools, because people see the other side and they say, well, you know, evolution is not so convincing. And they realize that. And therefore, the only way they can maintain their hegemony in this, in this controversy is to keep the other side out. And that's what they've really tried so hard to do is to keep the other side out. And very successfully, the courts have said, yeah. One side's religion, the other side is science, and therefore name-calling. Of course, we know they're both belief structures. They're both worldviews. And basically, you're talking about one worldview versus the other worldview. And one worldview is one set of beliefs. The other worldview has another set of beliefs. Why not look at both worldviews? And, of course, they don't. They realize and have said this. In fact, several of the articles that I've read say basically that it's hard to convince people of evolution. The natural thing people see is we look like we were created. And therefore, you have to work. You have to be good teachers of evolution to help them see we weren't created, but evolved. Yeah, it, it, it's funny you said that because, you know, when we have these conversations with the critic, that's the false dilemma that they'll present. It's either science or religion. Um, you know, and we, we love science here, but... You know, they'll define science in a way that is proper, mm -hmm. something that's demonstrable, repeatable, falsifi falsifiable, and all of that stuff. But then when they start giving their lines of evidence, it's just conjecture. Like, Donnie, right? Go dig up a Roman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's an equivocation taking place there. You know, they'll say they're on the side of science, but then they just give a lot of storytelling that's not science. One thing that surprised me, I've been a number of conferences with scientists and they didn't know where I was coming from. And I just sit down and start talking. 
And I say, well, how are you doing? Huh? How's teaching going? Oh, it's struggling. We're trying to teach evolution. Well, what, what evidence do you teach for evolution? Well, we look at homology. We look at vestigial organs. We look at, and they go through all of these things which have been refuted. And I just can't understand how they haven't seen the other side. And I right. mentioned, I taught anatomy for many years, and there really is no evidence for vestigial organs. And they said, well, that's not true. We still don't know what the appendix, yeah, I know there's some theories, but we still don't know what these do. And I mentioned in my anatomy mm -hmm. books that we cover all these you know, vestigial organs, and they mention they're not vestigial, they have a function. And they seem unaware of that. Well, I teach biology, I don't teach anatomy. And it just surprised me how unaware they are of the evidence against their own worldview. And that largely is because they're only exposed to one side. They're not exposed to the other side. And this person I was talking to, by the way, was a professor at a Nazarene college. And so I would have thought at least he would have been aware of the other side, but he wasn't. And he said, there just is no evidence for, for creation. And uh, he just you know, gave him a long lecture as to what he was convinced evolution was true. And he must, at a Nazarene college, he must be aware of the other side, but he wasn't. And I was astounded as how he uninformed he was. And if you think about it, and I ask him, how many books have you read on creation? I haven't read any. Why should I? They're wrong. How many books have you read critical of evolution? Well, why should I? They're wrong. So he, he admitted he read nothing on the other side. He only read the one side. And I would think at a Nazarene college, he would be aware of the other side, but he wasn't. And he said it, over and over. It Go proves ahead. they're not looking at it objectively. As you said, Jerry, they're not up to date on the data or the literature. And earlier you, you spoke of creation not being taught in schools, basically just the religion of evolution being pushed, but also the silencing of the opposition. And so I, I stay up to date on all of your articles. And you wrote an article recently titled Tenure No Longer Protects Creationist Professors. And this has to do with the silencing of, of the opposition. And so I was wondering if you could speak briefly about the significance of, of that article, the contents of it. Yeah, basically I looked and I have thousands of pages on this, this situation, this uh, uh, Chance, is her name, she, <clears throat> she's Chinese. And uh, she makes it very clear in her writing that she did not accept creation, she was an evolutionist. When she became a Christian, she was still an evolutionist. And what changed her to accept the creation worldview was the science. And she said, as I did research and studying and so on, and this, you're talking about a woman who did a postdoc at Harvard, very bright, extremely intelligent woman. And she uh, basically said, as I was doing the science, I would think, how in the world can we go from a prokaryotic organism to a eukaryotic organism? And I don't see it that systems are so different that I don't see that you can go from one to the other. Unless you have all the parts, you're not going to get life. You're not going to get production of protein. And therefore, she said, it was the science who brought me to the creation world. And I have a whole book on that. Science is the doorway to the creator. And uh, there are many people, including me, who that was important. When you study the science, you see the handiwork of God everywhere. And that's what she saw. And she brought out that she became a creationist through studying the science. And she therefore ended up with trouble at the college because even though they were aware of her arguments and they were aware that she was did not begin as a creationist, she, she was an associate professor. She wasn't a, a neophyte. And so as an associate professor, they did evaluations on her and she did fine. She was a doctrinaire evolutionist. But then, of course, when she began to change, 
and question evolution is when she got into trouble. And indeed, they, even though she was tenured, they managed to uh, terminate her and now she's without a job. And this I've seen so often, usually though tenure protects one, but in this case it did not. And I would think they would realize because they knew her, she was there for what, nine years, 10 years? They knew her, they knew she was an evolutionist. They knew why she changed from a evolutionist to a creationist. They, he gave her the documents showing this is why I changed because the evidence. I didn't change because my pastor told me right. that evolution wasn't true. She changed because the evidence. And yet they terminated her anyways. And you could see that they were, and I have again, thousands of pages of documents. And they were angry at her that you just you have to believe in evolution. You cannot, you cannot oppose the Darwinian worldview. And their response is, yeah, you found these problems and solve them. Solving these problems means that figure out how pro prokaryotes could have evolved into eukaryotes. And right. she said, you can't because it's a whole different system. And the, the, all the tools necessary to produce protein are different. I think they're all, or most are different. I think all are different. She brought out. But, uh, and uh, this is well, a good I I appreciate that response and also you bringing it to light in your article. This is her book here that she wrote with Dr. Rob Stadler. And so I highly recommend this book. And it, it really is unbelievable what they've done to her and what they've done to so many others. And I think you nailed it when it comes to the unsolvable problems with evolutionary theory. And we see this in, in their peer-reviewed literature where they have papers that have data points that suggests these major problems with evolutionary theory, but they can't question the theory itself. They basically have to give a number of what I would call rescue devices that, you know, could possibly solve the problem, even though they don't do. And that brings me to the next question. You also wrote an article recently on peer review. And Sam, as you know, we get a lot of critics here and they're constantly, um, challenging us to publish in, in the evolutionary peer-reviewed literature if we really do have such good evidence. And so my basic question then, Jerry, is what are some problems with peer review in general? Well, because peer review, you're looking at people who have a certain worldview and they look for that worldview when they peer review an article. And if they perceive that this article does not support the evolutionary paradigm, there's questions. They wonder, should this person be published? And I know I've talked with people who brought out some really good neurological issues relative to the nervous system. And the peer review couldn't find anything wrong with it, except this person doesn't accept it evolved. And uh, therefore, we, we can't accept this article. And usually they don't say that, but sometimes you can find that out because you know in very narrow areas like neurology, you probably only have a thousand neurologists in the whole world that specialize on uh, I don't know, the, the uh, mitochondria of the neurons, neurosystem. And so therefore, they're a very narrow area. And therefore, you know, when you write an article in the mitochondria in the nervous system, you're probably going to get certain people. And sometimes you can tell who did the reviewing. And then they turn it down. And then you, you might ask them later on, well, gee, what was wrong with my article? Well, to be honest, you're, you're hinting towards creation. You can't allow that. And so they get from their, their, their peers feedback on what the problem was. Now, of course, you don't necessarily know this, but I can tell when I have articles peer reviewed, even in creation journals, I can tell that I have a creationist that reviewed it that has a certain idea and I don't have that idea. And you can see that he 
focuses on that idea. And I say, I, I know who peer reviewed this in the creation movement. Creationists <laughs> generally, we have almost all the articles I publish have at least three reviewers, at least three reviewers. And some are pretty critical, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But among secular, it's amazing. They'll mention who the peer reviewer was. And there's one person. And I wow. thought, how can you review an article appropriately with one reviewer? I, there's no creation journal that I know that has one reviewer. Some have four or five. Right. Most have at least three. And so ours is a lot more stringent than their peer reviews are. I'm sure if I had one peer review, probably some of the articles would never get published and some would be published that are, shouldn't be published. And so you want more peer reviews because my experience is one person brings out certain things. The other person finds things. The first person didn't and I didn't. And so you correct this concern from peer review one, another concern that peer review had, you correct that. And so you end up correcting two mistakes that would have gotten by if you didn't have two reviewers. So I'm happy for three peer reviewers because you, you're more apt to get correct the mistakes or find things that are not clear. I did an article on horse evolution and some things were not very clear and they caught that. And so I'm working on improving it so I can deal with their questions. What would you say to the, oh, sorry. What would you say to the critic who wants to dismiss the creation journals? Just well, all the number one, they haven't read them. Number one, they haven't read them. They may read specific articles specifically to critique it, but I find the biggest problem is people just don't read what we do. Or if mm-hmm. they do read it, they read it specifically with the purpose of finding flaws. And so they don't really sit down and read it regularly. And that's why you have people still assume that vestigial organ argument is a good argument. And therefore, that's been covered carefully by us as well as other people, evolutionists, but they just don't read the other side. And I guess as one person told me, look, I have a hard time keeping up with the journals in my area of neurology. I just don't have time to read all this other stuff. And so that's a big problem. Now, I read mostly evolution stuff. People say, probably all you read is creation stuff. Well, no, I read mostly evolution stuff because that's where I get articles for ideas for articles. When you're looking for an article, I have taken an evolution book off the shelf and I start to read it, and that gives me ideas for articles. And right. so most of my reading, I would say 80%, is with the evolutionary literature. In fact, I would say probably 70% of the books in my library take the evolution position because they are important for me to understand where they're, where they're coming from so I can try to evaluate it and you know, respond to it if, if necessary. Anyway, sorry. No, 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 that's a great response. This is such an important topic, uh, peer review. And as you put it earlier, variety in peer review is so important. And Young Earth Creation peer review in, in our journals are rigorous, multiple people critiquing the article and the work. And unfortunately, I just find that, that your critics are, are not reading our technical literature that provide some really profound arguments for special creation and for separate ancestry. But Jerry, as you put it, you can oftentimes find some of the best data points and arguments directly in the evolutionary literature itself. And you pointed to vestigial organs. They're still using those arguments. Uh, They're still using arguments pertaining to endogenous retroviruses, which we understand now have some incredible 
functions pertaining to the embryo, the placenta, immune response, but also introns and other portions of the non-coding regions of, of the genome. It's almost like their vestigial organ and, and structure argument now applied to the genome. And so you wrote an article recently titled, What are introns for? And so evolutionists, for the most part, they'll look to these, these introns as being mostly junk, just like they look to most of the genome as being mostly junk. Can you speak to that junk argument from the evolutionists? Well, the main issue is that if these genes were jumping around, as they talk about introns, were in between, of course, the, the exons, the genes that actually produce the protein. Right. But there's jumping around, as they say, you're going to have life won't last too long. And we know now when they move around, there's a reason. We're still trying to understand the reason, but it produces one more level of complexity in the genome. And that's what we find when we do research. We find, what is this? How does this work? Why is this there? Why is this doing things? And we find out it's there for a good reason. And now we know introns, I can't say all introns, but most introns are there for a very good reason. Right. And the right. reason is, of course, they produce enormous amount of variety. And they help us respond. Sometimes creationists call this a response to a situation by genetic changes. Now, we know, of course, epigenetics is one way that's done. But we also know that there are ways where the body can produce variety to basically allow it to adapt to another environmental situation. And one way it does this, of course, is by introns. There's lots of stuff on introns. I didn't even know people are out there who still question whether they're useless. I'm surprised when I come across these articles that because there's been aware of introns, what, for 20, 30 years now? Right. Many people do research, have been doing research on introns for many, many years. And uh, as well as jumping genes, Barbara McClintock's work where she talked about jumping genes. And uh, this, of course, was questioned at first. But now it's pretty clearly a mechanism which helps produce variety. So you talked about Neanderthals a while ago. I wouldn't be surprised if some of these mechanisms is what produced the differences between Neanderthal genes and our genome. Mm. And it could be introns, it could be jumping genes, the way of uh, producing new information, a design way of producing new information. Like sexual reproduction is a design way of producing new information. That's why we can have 12 kids and they're all different. Have you heard of the, um, there's a, I guess there's a, a uh, lactose a mutation I guess the argument is that when we're we are born and as we get older, we become allergic to lacto lactose intolerant. But there's right. a, a mutation that takes place, which is which allows um, some adults to digest the, lac the lactose in milk, continue drinking milk. And they'll use this as evidence as a, a beneficial mutation. Yeah, what I understand, what I understand is that mutation occurs and that's why some people become lactose intolerant. I'm not lactose intolerant. I have no problem with ice cream and all that good stuff. And most people don't have any problem. And we don't have any problem because we still have the functional gene. But in some people, the gene is broken and therefore it's not functional. But this is, of course, evidence of degeneration, not evidence of evolution. We're not evolving upward, but the genome is degenerating, which, of course, we've recognized that. That's known for, for decades. Yeah. Thank you. Um, another Another question I have, um, how would you respond to somebody that uses the chromosome 2 fusion as evidence of evolution? 
Well, you do an evaluation of the chromatone fusion area, and you find there is no evidence of uh, a fusion there. You find genes, functional genes there, and you find no evidence of telomeres. That's how I like to pronounce it. It's pronounced different ways, but telomeres or telomeres. But anyways, uh, telomeres, you find you should find two telomere, telomeres at the fusion site, but you don't. You don't find them there. You find basically uh, genes that are functional. You should find two central mirrors, and you don't find two central mirrors. You find one central mirror. Areas where there's supposed to be central mirrors, likewise, they're not there. They find maybe what might be remnants, but of course, you can find genes and then find other genes which have what seem to be remnants, but you just find similarities between genes. And so that's not, you know, you find similarities between words. It doesn't mean that one word came from another word. It means there happens to be similarities in the two words. And they may be very different words with very different meaning. And so likewise, you find there simply is no evidence for the fusion theory, which, of course, they use to explain the fact that apes have one more chromosome than we do. And the theory is it fused. And that's why we have one less. So the fusion human specific anyway. Yeah. Yeah. As far as I know, there's no animal that yeah. claim a fusion of a fusion site. Hmm. But we have the genome sequence to the level now where this can be analyzed. And Jeffrey Tompkins, of course, has done a good job analyzing this. And he's that's his area. He's what is a genomics lab at Clemson University for a while. And he right. does a good job making comparisons because that's what he did for a living. And he has all the tools necessary to make the comparisons. And when you make the comparisons, then you see that it doesn't hold water, the fusion site. And of course, evolutionists try to argue that, well, it must be wrong. And it's hard to admit that, yeah, we're wrong. But I think if they're humble, they would say, yeah, I guess there is no fusion site. This idea is wrong. It just takes a while to seep into the evolutionary literature. <laughs> it, it was uh, Dr. Ken Miller that said, if there was no fusion, there was no evolution. And as you're pointing out, the, the, the evidence suggests that there was no fusion. The militant critics, they suggested, well, the gene, the DDX11L2 gene or the DDX11L2 gene is weakly expressed. It's not actually functional. It's mostly just noise. And in my study, Jerry, I've actually found that no, that the gene is highly expressed in many different cells within the human body. And this DDX11L2 gene is actually incredibly important for uh, cellular processes. And so that argument just doesn't work. And therefore my question that I like to ask them, Jerry, is how do you get highly functional genes by slamming together two chromosomes? Yeah, that's a problem. I think yeah, they do argue that it's just barely functional, but right. from what I'm aware of, it is highly functional. Now, of course, obviously every gene is not functional in every cell. And so what you have to do is you have to look at a number of cells because that gene may be highly functional in certain cells, skin cells, for example, but not functional in other cells. And therefore, and maybe weakly functional in some cells because whatever protein that produces is not needed as much in other cells. It's needed more in other cells. And so therefore you have to study its functionality in a wide variety of cells, determine whether or not it indeed is functionless in all cells. And it's, you know, a lot of work. We have what, 10, 50 billion cells. So there's a lot of comparison. Of course, you right. can take cell categories like skin cells and epidermis cells and, and other types of cells. So you can look at types of cells. But then again, we have several types of skin cells. 
And so you can't always go by the number of cells. That's why they say, well, there's 200 cell types, but it depends. Because some cells are similar, but not identical. So therefore, some count them as two cell types. And therefore, there wouldn't be 200. There would be 201 or 202. That's why it's hard to get a specific number of cell types, because it does vary according to its level of expression. And so what do we do, therefore, at the fusion site? We understand that the fusion site itself looks like it's it's an active promoter for that DDX11L2 gene that overlaps it. But we still do find those telomeric repeats in forwards and backwards at that site. I believe it's about a seven to 800 base pair signal or region. What do we do with those then? Why are there those extra telomeric like elements there i wasn't aware that they found that but then you may be more up to date than i am on that i worked with jeff on that four or five years ago so i thought that they they didn't find these telomere evidence of telomere sites at the fusion site and uh, but then again a lot of the the telomere sites are repetitive that you do find in other places in the genome and therefore right. that i have to look into my understanding is Dr. Tompkins, he's done a genome-wide search and he's actually found those internal telomeric-like repeats, not only at that area, although apparently it's there's more in that area than other spots. Nonetheless, you find them all throughout the genome within chromosomes. And they actually, a lot of them act in, in terms of gene expression. They have functional roles associated with them that have nothing to do with, with a fusion event. So... Um, but Dr. Bergman, as we wind down here, I want to make sure that I get these last couple questions in. Again, as I've pointed out, you're a fan favorite, Dr. Bergman. This is your fifth time here. And I always appreciate your time. Your work is, is truly a blessing to, to the cause. And so Doki Doki Bible Club asks, and this goes right back to your presentation. Why is the universe so big? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, and the question is really, does it go on forever? And what, what's infinity? What's forever? I think it's so big because the earth is in a position to where it has to be able to travel because the universe is expanding. And therefore, it's got to have room to continue expanding. And therefore, presumably, if it expands forever, of course, you know, new heavens and new earth, and there's, that's another topic, but on the other hand, uh, probably the best explanation is it wasn't forever, but it will eventually be larger and larger and larger because expansion movement produces stability. And the earth is stable because it moves, the sun is stable because it's moved, the solar system is stable because it moves, the Milky Way galaxy is stable because it moves, and so movement is critical for stability. It seemed like a contradiction, but it's not. And so I would say it's as large as it is now because that to achieve that stability, it has to continually expand. And uh, we'll see. I, that, that's a good question. And that's a question that uh, evolutionists certainly can't answer. Of course, they're trying to answer where the universe came from. That can't answer that either. But, but, uh, but yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, it seems like they would need a some sort of mechanism to explain this rapid expansion from a singularity, you know, what caused that? And then I think a bigger question would be what caused it to slow down? 
Yeah, well, from what I understand now, the, 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 what they know from doing the research is that the universe is not slowing down, it's speeding up. Hmm. And that would produce stability. But now it may slow down in the future, so it's speeding up and it'll slow down. And so that's, uh, but we're talking about distances that are so far away, which is a lot of speculation. But from their from their position, there would be that immediate rapid expansion, and it's many times faster than the speed of light, space time expanding, and then it would then it would had to have slowed down to the point where it can speed up again slower. Uh, yeah. Right. It's, but they have pretty good evidence that it is not slowing down now, but it is speeding up. Yeah. And when that evidence was first discovered, they thought, just check the data again. Let's do the calculations again. Do the calculations again. Same same result. Uh, let's do the calculations again. And so after three four times doing the calculations, they all said it's speeding up. They just that just, nobody expected that, and that's yeah. what we see. It's speeding Is it, up. I believe it's called the graceful exit problem. Have you heard yeah. of that one? Yeah. 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 And so here's. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jerry. But eventually they say it'll slow down again. Mm. <laughs> There's a lot of, uh, as you put it earlier, Sam, storytelling with That's the evolutionary right. camp. And and we do a lot of debates here, Sam, as you know. So you've seen the many times that, that the atheists or naturalists are asked the question about where did time, matter, and space come from? You know, how, how do you explain the, the first and second laws of, of thermodynamics? And it's usually... Well, you know, hopefully more study or we'll figure it out and we don't have the answer yet. And so there's a lot of faith in atheism to, to yeah. essentially believe that hopefully one day we'll, we'll get the answers rather than uh, turning to God. And, and so he, here's a, um, a question from Alec Cox here. I appreciate the support and donation, Alec, to get your question in. And so he's asking, what was the propaganda that caused young earth creation? to be eliminated from any part of academia in secular schools? Was it that the evidence was too much on the YEC side or was it Lucy? Well, they realize that it's difficult and there's really a lot of literature on this. It's difficult because when people look at the human body, life, the universe, etc., it looks designed, it looks created and they realize that. So how do you convince that something that clearly looks created was not created, that it evolved. And they realized that they've got to get this other worldview out of the way to convince people of our worldview. And in many ways, that's a good question because you wonder if there is no God, if we evolved, why not let people talk about there might be a God in the classroom? I mean, what is the problem? Why are they so adamant? And I notice this when I confront evolutionists, how angry they get. It's almost like you're telling them their mother is a prostitute or something. They just get livid and angry. And I say, why are they, what, the, what is the anger for? Why are they so determined? Well, the good example is, of course, the case we talked about earlier of the uh, chains, the professor. They got so angry at her and they're determined to get her out. Why? Mm -hmm. Why not let her teach? Make sure she's a good teacher. She was. She was improving. She had some problems at first. She got the language issue. And she learned she had to do a lot of diagrams. She's got to come around, get around the language issue. But after a while, her student ratings were very good. Why not let her teach, let her do her work, 
Why not encourage her to do her work? Why is there so much effort, so much money, so much time, so many meetings, so many lawyers involved in getting rid of her? What is the point? Why is there so much aggression? I mean, just let her let her do her thing. And, you know, she worked with well with people. She had a number of assignments she was doing well, and her students liked her, and a number of reviews I've seen of her teaching, they loved her. And so later on, at first, like I say, she had some problems, the language problem, but she dealt with that by pictures and by better explanations. And uh, I had some professors who had perfect English, but were lousy professors. So you can't always judge on their language abilities. And uh, so that's, uh, so she was there for what, nine years? And they were determined, determined to get rid of her, no matter what it costs. Why the hatred? And I saw this when I was teaching at one school that they just almost the nice person became angry like they dropped something on their foot and just changed their continents. And I wonder why. I don't see creationists becoming angry like that. I, some might, I guess, but I haven't seen it. And we're just trying to explain our worldview and what we believe. Why is there so much anger and so much determination on the other side that they're going to quiet us no matter what? Right. And that's the, you know, the, people talk about, well, if you teach the Christian creation story, you have to teach all of them. Great idea. Let's teach all of them. Let's <laughs> teach the Hindu creation story. That's lovely. I've done articles on different creation stories. Creationists have written books on different creation stories. Let's teach them all. That's a good idea. We might have more understanding of what other people believe, especially the American Indians and Eskimos, etc. Let's teach them all. Let's, that's called cultural diversity. That's called tolerance. Let's cover them all. And when you do, you realize that the Christian creation story is miles above all the other creation stories. And you see the huge difference. And you can see that you can see why so many of the American Indians are dumping their creation story and accepting the Christian creation story because their creation stories are clearly fantastical and poetical, etc., and not very realistic. And so fine, let's teach them all. Amen. Why are they the only ones that get to get, you know, their their religion taught at in these public schools? And, and as you put it, the Genesis account of origins and the history of the universe is validated by the scientific data. And Jerry, you also asked the, the good question, why the hate, especially with Dr. Change Tan? And we know that that Jesus says, if, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And That's so right. it's it's expected when we uphold the truth. Dr. Change Tan, again, I had somebody in the audience ask what, what the book was that I mentioned earlier, An Origin of Life Reality Check, The Stairway of Life. Dr. Bergman, Change Tan has written extensively on orphan genes, these taxonomically restricted and essential genes that a creationist would, would expect to find where you have the, these certain sets of genes in, in specific organisms that are not found in others. And I, I was wondering if you could speak on that briefly. Yeah, there's a lot. And I noticed that she has found a lot of orphan genes, much more than the evolutionists would expect. You would expect if evolution occurred that there would be similarity. You'd find certain genes in humans, very similar genes, or the same genes in monkeys, in dogs, in cats, and even in plants. And she found so many genes were unique, very unique to one particular type of animal and they weren't found anywhere else and some certain 
Orphan genes were found in humans only, nowhere else. And certain orphan genes were found in rats and nowhere else, even though rats and humans are both mammals. And so that really creates a problem for evolution because you have so many very different, very unique, very new genes kind of appearing at random here and there. It's almost like you have the genome and you've got some genes here which are new and then other genome, other genes somewhere else are new and different. Why all the differences? If we evolved, there would certainly be a lot of similarities. And of course there is, but there's a lot more differences with orphan genes than you would ever expect. And that's what convinced her. This shows creation. It shows individual creation of genes in certain animals, very restricted to very specific animals and not throughout the whole system. And this is one thing that she said, and I was aware of orphan genes, but I wasn't aware that they're nearly as common as she found. Right. And even if she was at the university, let her find orphan genes. I mean, let somebody, let somebody else figure out where they came from. But she was doing good work on orphan genes, find thousands, thousands of orphan genes, just get a catalog of orphan genes. And evolutionists, I would think, would say, let's put these together. Let's see if we can't see a pattern of orphan genes. There might be there one there. But first, somebody's got to find them. And that could be her job is to find orphan genes. The university should have said, okay, you've got your lab back. You've got the money back. Find orphan genes. And your job is to do a catalog of orphan genes, period. She would love it. And that would clearly present a contribution to, to science and her field and maybe even evolution. But you don't know until you did a catalog. But I think that's you know a catalog of orphan genes. And I'm not sure anything like that exists now. They're mostly in the way, and so people tend to avoid avoid them. But on the other hand, she sure found a lot of them. And my guess is there are billions of orphan genes out there. Amen. But I think they realize that's going to be a problem for evolution. So let's just get rid of her. Let's get her <laughs> so we don't want to find anymore. We just well, they to have to be able to explain the... Mm -hmm evolution of these these novel and essential genes and i've heard them argue from the non-coding regions of the genome and and they'll say you know these these de novo gene synthesis basically i find it to be a circular argument they'll say these non-coding regions suddenly pop up to be become functional orphan genes they're hit with a series of mutations but as you've pointed out jerry in, in your writings the majority of mutations are deleterious they're damaging and so how is that going to produce these these essential genes, countless of them, as you're pointing out, Jerry. Yeah, but let her find them, and then we can, where are they? Are they right. mostly in areas that are, quote, junk? Let her find them, and then that's the next step, is to find out how many are in areas that are, you know, deleterious or, or useless or whatever. My guess is she'll find a lot that are not, that are in very important areas. Agreed. But let Agreed. Her well then go from there. Well, Jerry, I appreciate your time. Here's the final question for the night from the audience. And so we've had an excellent odd live chat, lots of engagement uh, from the chat with just a lot of questions and positive feedback. And so this last question comes in from Raven. Appreciate the support and the question. And Raven asks, what does Jerry think about celestial and terrestrial beings? Well, we know they're angels. We know that there are other spirit creatures out there. And the specifics of angels, I don't know. We spiritual body and i'm not sure what that is but on the other hand will we ever find people like us somewhere i don't know probably not but on the other hand they've been looking for a long time and uh the 
latest information. They've evaluated the exoplanets, trying to find maybe there are some that are in the habitable zone, and maybe some of those have life. And uh, more and more are realizing that, you know, it may be we're the only human creatures in the whole universe. And uh, let, them, let the scientists find out and let them keep looking for it. That's a motivation to find life on some exoplanet near some exotic star would be a career breaker for the scientists, certainly a Nobel Prize, as well as other honors. So let them look for it. And if they find it, then we'll deal with that. But so far, not finding evidence. And even though they've looked and looked and looked and looked, just they all have like 500 exoplanets now, and found one that really is a good candidate for a life somewhere else like us. So let them look for it, look for them and see where it goes. I have a feeling though, they will spend a lot of time, a lot of money, and they will find indeed the evidence is from what we can tell we're alone in the universe. And that evolutionists realize is a big problem for their worldview, but it's not a big problem for our worldview. Not at all. Yeah, there was a philosopher, I forget who, and he he made an argument or he reasoned that if the earth was as old or the cosmos was, was as old as the secular say, um, then we should expect to find a bunch of them if they're out there or none of them. And we found none of them. Yeah. yeah. I had a lot of estimates. I forget the cosmologist who had this equation, Drake, I guess, Drake equation. And uh Okay. He said, you just look for a lot more exoplanets and you'll find life. Well, they're finding a lot of exoplanets. What, I think 500 now is the record. I'm behind in this because every year they find more. But when they have four or five, six, seven thousand exoplanets and none of them have evidence of life, that may be interesting. But some are now more and more saying, you know, it could well be that their life is found only in one place in the whole universe. And that's right here. Yeah. These are evolutionary scientists that are saying this, that it looks more and more like we're alone in the universe. But it's hard for an evolutionist to say that because that means that, well. Special. Special. That's right. They don't want to admit that. And, and that brings us right back to the topic. For this evening's presentation, Jerry, you did a great job. God created the entire universe just for you. So as new people uh, join us, we are wrapping it up here as we come close to the two-hour mark. So time flies by with you, uh, Dr. Bergman. Excellent conversation. I really enjoyed this. We touched on a lot of topics, gentlemen, biology, genetics, astronomy. And so this really was a lot of fun. We, uh, I want to thank the audience, always uh, sending in great questions. And so, Jerry. I want to hand it to you if you had some final words, final thoughts. And again, thanks so much for being willing to do these programs. I know how busy you are, brother. Well, it's good to get out there. And uh, we used to be able to get out there more physically. But now with the cost of transportation and the airline flights and so on, I'm not going out and speaking as much as I used to. But still like to get out and talk to real people. Right. And, uh, I'm looking for an audience. In fact, I'm thinking of giving people a reward if they ask a good controversial challenging question because i just don't get this and i wish i would have at least one evolutionist in the audience who could <laughs> keep me awake and just not there most of the audience i go to are friendly and i give the presentation and they say a great job and they yawn and they go home and so i'm just 
twice in I've probably been to 500, 600 different churches, well, closer to 600 different churches. Only twice have I had some creationists challenge me who are theistic evolutionists, actually, and uh, they were a welcome diversion in my audience, twice out of 600 ch churches, one in Ohio and one in California. I can remember where they were at. So if you challenge me, I'll tell you, I won't forget you. <laughs> Some kind of 25, maybe a $50 reward if you uh, can. And then I might get some evolutionists to come. But it's I preach to the choir. And so if anybody has any churches out there where you've got a few evolutionists going or theistic evolutionists, hey, that would be a, a welcome pleasure for me. Well, that sounds like a great challenge there, uh, Dr. Bergman. How about in uh, Windsor? What's going on in Windsor? Yeah, you know, that would be fun. Maybe we can have some of our evolutionist critics make their way out for a church presentation and then a follow-up discussion, Q&A, where they can try and challenge you, Dr. Bergman. You know, I used and, to work in Windsor. Okay. Small Cunningham world. Corporation. We built buildings in Canada. As far as I know, the buildings I worked on, they're all standing. Many in Toronto. Cunningham Limited did a lot of construction work, big buildings in engineering, did uh, buildings for manufacturing and so on in Canada, Toronto, many. And so I uh, lived in Detroit and drove to Windsor to work. The office, they had an office in Windsor. So well, enjoy cool. being in Canada. <laughs> it, it's cold this time of year, I'll say that. But very cool. We'll definitely have to do something together in person, uh, Jerry, sometime in the future. I look forward to having you back on. And uh, we can consider that a challenge as well to our uh, critics in the audience. Next time Jerry is on the program, make sure you bring some challenging questions. Let's have some fun. So again, Jerry, thanks for doing this. Sam, appreciate you being here, uh, brother. You've been here a lot lately, joining me as, as co-host and really making some good comments and, and just being a, a real blessing, brother. So I'll hand it to you if you had any final thoughts, final words as well. Yeah, just for all the all the Christians in the chat, you know, I just hope that this has uh, encouraged you to trust in the truth of the revelation of God. And for the critics in the chat, this is another call to be reconciled with the God who loves you. Amen. Well said. Well said. Right here, our chat mod, he uh, he put a link. It says, check out Jerry's many articles here plus his bio. So check the description box. You're going to find all the relevant links to uh, Jerry's website, his books, and also his previous four programs that he's done with us. All very comprehensive. So with that, again, thank you for tuning in. God bless Jerry, Sam, and the audience. And until we meet again.